Sure. Thank, thanks. Uh, uh, thank you, Liam. I think uh, we have a uh, good quorum here, so we will maybe start. And first of all, again, thanks for giving us this opportunity to host you, right? I think we have uh, we have people from Investec and there are institutional investors from uh, India and uh, Asia who are, you know, who are, most of them are, are, um, are healthcare specialists, right? So maybe, you know, um, if you are ready to start the call, I, I obviously most of us know Viatris, uh, you know, at a broader level. So, you know, I will, I, maybe if we can start with Q&A straight away. Uh, does it work for you, William? That, that's perfectly fine. Happy to get started. Yeah. Good, great. So I think, uh, first and foremost, I think um, you made a very big announcement um, in terms of restructuring in in February this year, and I know you got this question a lot. But I mean, if you could, if you could just take us through, you know, what was the primary, what were the primary reasons for the restructuring, and and I think you you talked about the nine billion value unlocking through that restructuring. So where are we in that uh, process? So we can start with that, and then maybe we'll ask more questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so nice to, uh, nice to meet everyone. Happy to, uh, to engage with you, uh, on this first opportunity and look forward to further discussions. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, I would just say Beatrice and you take a step back, um, you know, the company came together in, in, Feb- I'm sorry, November of 2020, um, during, uh, the pandemic with, with COVID. And, you know, we quickly had to put together the, the operating plan for, for 2021. And, and with that, um, you know, issue guidance and kind of, you know, lay out, I'll say, a blueprint of what we were going to focus on. So that was really the, I'll say, the, the one-year kind of operating plan to kind of get the company kick-started. The, the other pieces um, that we've kind of announced, that all came out of the um, – strategic plan that the company underwent in um, all of 2021. And, you know, through that strategic analysis, you know, we looked, you know, across the business, across the segments, across our categories, therapeutic areas and everything, and we said, what, what is going to be, um, we've got a very broad platform now, you know, globally with our infrastructure, commercially with the pipeline, um, with the medicines that, that we produce and sell. Um, so as we thought about, um, you know, where we want to kind of focus and narrow the company, we said, what's core and what's going to be non-core? And are there areas where we feel like we're not necessarily getting external credit where we can unlock value? And it was really through areas where we want to be core and are there areas that maybe are underappreciated or could be better situated did we come up with, I'll say, the, the rationale for, one, the divestiture of the biosimilar business, which I can get into, and two, the identification of other select assets um, that we were positioning for, for divestiture. And what all that means is that, you know, we really wanted to, I'll say, index against um, what will be core. And so that is a global, going forward, a global generics business, and we, we continue to remain very interested in that business. Um, across our, our footprint, um, a business that, um, as you kind of mentioned, we, we inherited all the legacy Upjohn, Pfizer brands, Lyrica, Lipitor, Viagra, Norvac, Celebrex, Effexor, and a handful of others. Those brands still have a lot of brand equity around the world and, um, you know, produce a lot of cash flow for the company. And then the third piece is 
where we think we have a lot of internal capabilities and strengths from a development perspective or regulatory perspective is the continuation of complex products, products that have a more durable, um, longer kind of lifespan than, you know, some of the traditional commoditized generics. And so that's where, you know, as we laid those three areas out and where we wanted to commit investment, resources, time of the organization, it made sense for us to look at things that maybe weren't ideally situated. And and that's where, you know, with the, the biosimilar business, you know, what really drove that decision was was really a few things. One was, as we looked at that market and we looked at what were going to be the keys to success going forward, you know, we certainly see it as a market. You know, we don't deny that we it's going to be a growth market in terms of volumes, given the um, expectation for utilization of biosimilars over the next decade. But the, the I would say the, you know, the holistic view for us was as it is becoming more, I'll say, complex, more competitive, we thought that it made sense in order to be really successful in that market and to kind of own your destiny. We thought that vertical integration was really important. And, you know, through our great partnership with, with Biocon, um, Biocon, as you, many of you know, handles the manufacturing, the R&D. We handle the commercialization, the distribution. We thought there may be a better way to position that business for success, and that's where, uh, you know, we we led to the decision to to reposition this with Biocon. We also, right, as we were looking at the valuation of the company, thinking about, you know, how do we unlock value? How do we accelerate financial flexibility? That transaction will serve to do that. So I would say that transaction, um, while it, it probably surprised a lot of people, but when you take a step back and you look at some of the pieces we laid out, um, you know, really is probably a win-win for both sides, both us and, and Biocom. So we're really, um, you know, pleased with how that's progressing. We expect it to close in the second half. So I would say that's the overarching. And I don't, I'll stop here. Um, we can go into the detail in any of this stuff, but that's really the overarching kind of plan and, and path that we followed and, and some of the, the decision points that we thought about to make to, to these announcements that happened in February. Sure, and uh, thanks thanks for the start. And I think, uh, William, I think you rightly said that a lot of people are surprised because historically, uh, whenever uh, we heard uh, Mylin or now Vitris uh, talking about biosimilars, right, I think it was always that this is going to be a key road driver for the company, right? So, I mean, if you could probably, you know, obviously, and you were also one of the pioneers in this field, right? So, uh, what, what really changed right, in that sense, right? Because, I mean, across the world, um, you are seeing uh, most generic companies actually looking at biosimilars as a growth driver. And, and I think, uh, to a large extent, it does fit in uh, that overall strategy of selling lower-cost medicines, right? So, what really changed between, uh, you know, I would say two, three years back and now that this prompted, uh, this, this move was prompted? Yeah. Yeah, I would say you're right, right, and it was um, in a lot of companies, and I think that part of what the way you framed the question is part of the rationale from from our view is, right, there's a lot of companies that are interested in this space, right, and you, I think you can take the example of, you know, the upcoming U.S. launch for um, the, the biologic Humera, right, there's going to be, you know, probably half a dozen to a dozen players, right, competing in that market versus, you know, a very, I'll say, um, 
ambitious kind of branded competitor in, in Abbey to retain kind of volume. So as we looked at the market, we looked at the maturing side of it, we looked at the increased competition, we looked at our ability to, you know, compete given that, you know, our biosimilar business um, is not a wholly owned business, right? It has come through great partnerships, right? But those partnerships, right, present at times um, not a not as an efficient way to to approach the market if you were kind of fully integrated. And I think that's that's the kind of key piece is that we thought that vertical integration, based on our all our experience in the generics market over the last decade or so, the vertical integration was key to us kind of remaining competitive and successful in that market. And so as we looked at really two scenarios on this, we looked at a a divest versus, I won't call it a divest, but a repositioning versus a internal kind of build scenario where we thought about building our own capabilities, building our own armed, our own manufacturing, and kind of the time to do that. And we looked at the investment of that capital versus where we want to point the company into, I would say, a continuation of more complex product development, novel products, um, NCs, 505B2s, right? We think that there's a real internal strength there, um, and and we think we have the right capabilities existing in-house. So it was a matter of really a prioritization of, 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 of resources, time, and investment. And given the, I would say, the desire and really having an aligned view with Biocon kind of made this an ideal transaction um, um, for us. Okay, sure. I mean, um I mean, so, so, um, so I think, I mean, is, is the thought, I mean, you did, you did allude to some, uh, at some point that obviously there was obviously increasing competition in this business, right? But at the same time, I think, uh, uh, you guys build a very solid commercial infrastructure as well, right? So was there a, was there a thought that this whole commercial infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, may, may not be needed in the longer term given that, you know, the, the, the game is changing, right? You're seeing more interchangeable products and the barrier in terms of development is actually going down. So maybe the, the, the commercial infrastructure maybe in the longer term won't be needed, right? I mean, was that one of thoughts that crossed your mind? Yeah, it was, it's our, I think for the team, yes, right? And and looking at, you know, again, right, looking at the breadth of the the, the, the business that we have, um, looking at kind of areas. Um, and, you know, one, the other thing, too, that I think maybe investors and in externally weren't necessarily fully appreciative of was where the economics, right, of the partnerships, right, given it's a partnership model for us, right, and it's not just with Biocon, it's with other FKB and Revance and Theravance and other companies, was that, you know, the biosimilar business for us is was margin diluted. So, at the, you know, we did forecast and did expect, right, the top line growth from that business. That would have come at the expense of putting pressure on our gross margin because it was below our company average and pressure on our, on our EBITDA margin, right? So that was a, not to say that drove the decision, that was a financial construct. But, you know, as we thought about, right, how um, we can enable success and thought about the time span, I would say the time in which to backward integrate Right, that return just didn't seem to be as as logical as the return on 
where we can kind of further invest in pipeline opportunities, um, where we can kind of look to bring in things um, from other companies um, and control kind of the end-to-end process, right? And so that's where I would say, you know, we kind of, we thought about kind of both and and where we wanted to be focused. So, and, and was there a big role that interchangeability played in this decision given that life will become easier going forward and the commercial burden, commercialization burden for future biosimilars uh, launches would have been lower? The, did, they, did this also cross your mind that pricing would be probably lower from a longer-term perspective? Well, yeah, just in that you, you mentioned, let me take two points. You mentioned interchangeability, you mentioned pricing. Um, yeah. Interchangeability, right, is if you're going to, it's going to be, it's going to really be asset dependent, right? It's not going to be for, for every biologic, right? And it really depends upon, Rajiv talks about it a lot in terms of the characteristics of the disease state. And, you know, like insulin, for example, is a great opportunity where interchangeability makes sense, right? Other products, you won't necessarily have that. But my point is that, you know, when you have a partnership structure where you may not have control of R&D, right, everybody has to see and understand that the, um, are we, you know, the interchangeability kind of dynamics and why or why not, why or why it doesn't make sense. And so that kind of joint decision thinking and process, you have to kind of have alignment on. And I'll just say that that ends up being inevitably, unfortunately, in a partnership structure, just not as efficient if you have full decision kind of rights and authority to be able to say, okay, we want a citrate free product. We want a high dose product. If you look at like an ILEA from like a four meg to like an eight meg, we want interchangeability. Those development decisions just happen much more seamless and much more efficiently in a wholly owned type of, of, of entity. And that we think that was a piece where I'm getting to is a little bit of the details behind why vertical integration we think is important. The other piece is, yeah, I think, you know, you're going to see, um, you know, particularly with Humera and the number of competitors next year, right, you're going to see a very probably interesting dynamic play out with pricing. I think it's inevitable that there will be, you know, not necessarily list price. I think that's where maybe people, because the, the, the healthcare system, as you probably many of you know, is, is very different in the U.S., very complex. It's really on the rebating side and the gross to nets where you're looking channel by channel to kind of see how you can get access, right? Part of the, I'll say, I'll call it the rebate wall, which will be really interesting next year, is to see, right, what AbbVie does strategically um, in terms of the rebates they're going to offer, right, to hold volume, right? They already have a big book of rebates with pairs. So that's regardless of what product you come to the market with, and presumably physicians and patients, I think this is another example because it's not just going to be a price game, Physicians and patients who have been stable and who've had a lot of success with Humara, for example, right, part of the challenge is you can't just offer a price discount, right, and say, okay, here you go. Now I'm going to get you to switch to a biosimilar, right? You have to have physician-patient endorsement to convince them to switch to a biosimilar, right? Some markets, it's a little bit less of a hurdle. Some markets, it's going to be more. So I think that's a piece, too, where pricing will have to accommodate that type of decision in, in terms of, um, you know, where, where the market goes. Sure. No, no, I think that's, that's quite interesting. Um, 
So the, uh, maybe we'll move on to uh, uh, some of the businesses. Now, I think Eurogenic still is, is a large part of the business, and I think uh, <clears throat> probably uh, some of the Indian companies last year did complain about uh, price erosion actually going up last year, the levels of price erosion, maybe from a mid-single-digit level to a double-digit level. I mean, did you did you experience that too, and, you know, uh, what what did cause that? And obviously, the, 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 the follow-up question would be, are you seeing the change uh, any improvement there in terms of uh, U.S. genetic spicing? Yes, yeah, it's a good question. One we get a lot of, right, and there's a lot of visibility into that, uh, you know, in the U.S., I'll say, with obviously Acubia and other types of demand sources. You know, what we've seen, I'll say, and it really is, and what I always say to the people is that it really is company by company. And, and the reason for that is, is because, yes, broadly in the U.S., Right, all generic um, competitors, right, are facing right, pricing declines at different levels across their portfolio. And why it is company by company is because different companies, right, including Milan and Beatrice, have chosen kind of different paths. For us, right, we've been actively over a handful of years now, even before Beatrice was formed, Regime and his team undergo a very, I'll say, detailed exercise to analyze all the SKUs on an annual basis in our portfolio. And that's where, you know, based on, um, you know, economic profit modeling at a high level, what we do is we look at SKUs that, you know, are, are negative margin, low margin, and we actively prune them out of, out of the portfolio. So what you tend to see is we've been very aggressive taking out hundreds of millions of dollars actively every year in the portfolio for what I'll call our commoditized generics. The commodity space for us isn't going to be an area where, you know, we're going to, you know, expect to win or expect to compete, right? We're moving away from that. So when you see the impact of price on our portfolio, it tends to be, you know, what we've seen last year and kind of what we commented to very publicly was that, you know, it was probably more mid to high single-digit price erosion in the U.S., and we call that out in our financial statements and in our in our waterfall bridges on a quarterly basis. We call out what's known as, we, we label it as base business erosion. This year, we're continuing to see kind of that level. I know some, some other companies have said their price erosion is kind of, a, you know, low double-digit to mid-double-digit. So, I'll say it's an industry issue. I don't think we are in a position to say we've seen or can see the bottom or kind of when it starts to plateau out. I would hope that in a global inflationary environment that we're in um, and just the need for increased, the further need for increased generic utilization, that at some point you can get what I'll say pricing stability, but I don't think we're at that point where we say, hey, yeah, we, we start to see, we're starting to see pricing stability. Now, look, there's some products every year you can adjust your prices, but broadly I would say the portfolio, when you look at our generics line in North America, that's the line where you see that, that kind of mid-high single-digit price increase impacting the commoditized side of the business. Okay, great. And, and I think one of the reasons which, you know, um, in we hope, right, all kinds of sign in the generic business that, you know, the intensity, the competitive intensity will go down, right? I mean, are you seeing any such things? Because I think, uh, I mean, invariably, when we look at companies in India, the return on capital is getting 
hurt uh, because of erosion every year. But are you seeing some sort of competitive intensity actually uh, getting lower uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, I I think look on the the commodity side I just spoke about, I would say no, right? And I say that because we're still in a, in a deflationary price environment, right? So I don't see the competition abating there. I think you see people claiming their stake in terms of who wants to play and who doesn't want to play. And like I said, we're kind of moving away from the commoditized side. I think you know in areas where you know uh, more complex products, like for example. Um, you know, you take a, a product like, let's just say Tech Federa. And I would say Tech Federa is more on the commoditized side that we launched. You know, in, in an old analog, you know, potentially you would have six months of exclusivity, right, in the U.S. That's a product where we had, I think, 35 or 40 days. Um, and then had a lot of intense competition come in. Um, so when you look at that type of analog versus where we want to be going forward in terms of more types of these products, products like Restasis. Restasis was a product that we had in development for a handful of years. We were the first ones to get approval for Restasis, right? So it was a, a great achievement from the development organization and the regulatory organization and also all the legal work we had done um, to get that product to market. What we see is you know, so far we only want to prove, but there are three authorized generics in that market. You've got KDK, you've got Apotech, you've got us, and then you've got, right, the branded product. Um, I would say three competitors, right? So that's a little bit less than five to ten on the commoditized side. But you still do see, going back to this point I made on the rebates through Mary, you see, right, price concessions and discounts you have to give to the PBMs and the distributors in order to kind of hold your volume. So that's that's competition to me. Um, I think where what we'll see is, you know, you'll probably continue, you'll have a cleaner bifurcation of, you know, entities that can afford and want to be in different spaces in the generics business in terms of commodity products, right, and that market will support only so many. I think you will get to that point. The complex products, novel products, life cycle management opportunities, you're going to have less just because the time it takes to develop products, the cost it takes. Some some products are upwards of a few hundred million dollars in development spend, right? So your payback on that investment, you know, happens in, say, years three, four, five, and six. Some may want a shorter cycle. So I think, you know, there will be um, the competitive dynamic is really region by region. We still like the business in a global sense, like our Europe business. The U.S., right, is very different than Europe is. The Europe business is kind of flat and slightly growing on the generics line. That's a very healthy market for generic companies in Europe, and it's a very broad market, a market where um, that healthcare system favors, right, increased generic utilization. You don't have this pricing deflation like you have. So I think it really, you have to look at it segment by segment and the competitors and where they're kind of tilting their portfolio. Um, as you think through opportunities. Yeah, so so I think 2018 and 19, I think there was a lot of uh, this hue and cry around pricing, and we did see a lot of players uh, exiting specific products, including Mylan at that time, right? And, I mean, given the cost, uh, I mean, given the inflationary situation currently in the market on the cost side, I mean, are you seeing, you know, some of the people really, Exiting a few products, like you said, you you call out 
every year a few but are you seeing that same uh, phenomena like 1819 um, you know where people started exiting the market because of uh, price pressures or cost pressures this time so yeah, i think not as much but i think that that could be something that spills over here in the next 6 to 12 months and i think that's just because of book um you know, when you look at the cost pressures now, you look at inflation that's all around us. You know, we, for example, were very proactive, and in our guidance in February, we, I think we were one of the first companies to just be very open and say, hey, we did see inflation hitting us in different parts of our business. We called out a $200 million headwind to EBITDA back in February, um, and that was reflective of what we were seeing in API from China and India, key starting materials energy costs, right, what it costs us to ship and distribute products in different ways. One of the things we did last year was we shipped a lot of, we, we, we changed from a lot of sea to, sorry, sea to air distribution given all the port backlogs. So, you know, for us, you know, it, it, my point is it, it's, it's an impact, but it didn't necessarily have a, you know, um, a noticeable impact on our gross margin just because we're able to really what drives our gross margin given the breadth of our portfolio and the size of our branded business right those brands are high margin so it's quite next but even though we are seeing the the pressure from inflation so i think as things continue and as people see pricing come down inflation and cost of goods sold go up i think it's inevitable that you will see some some contraction and some people, right, kind of decide to, to, to leave markets where it just doesn't make sense. Um, but again, like, that's where it, it doesn't happen on a product-by-product product basis. It happens more on a portfolio. It, has, it happens more on a customer level where, you you know, you just don't make a decision to leave one product because a lot of times when you're negotiating, at least in the U.S., and talking to payers, right, you're talking about, um, you know, a portfolio of things that you can kind of offer. So, you know, that's where I think it becomes a little bit more of a difficult discussion. So I think that that's quite interesting, and we hope that, you know, we see some price stability and maybe some people do exit. Uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah. So I think moving on to, you know, um, the evaluation portfolio, I think, again, White uh, uh, has been a pioneer here, and, uh, you know, um, you launched Adware very successfully, and we are hoping to switch in record very soon, uh, unless you've launched. But uh, I think the question is a little different. Uh, uh, I think there are there are a lot more opportunities in the innovation space, like uh, you know things like you know Proware or uh, Spiriva, right? Which which you thought were uh, relatively easier products than uh, Adware or Simbicot. I mean, so I mean, uh, a, a, any particular reason why? Uh, why Chris would have chosen to not target these, uh, because I can't even see them in your in your portfolio uh, 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 slide, right? So, is there is there a reason you did not target these two products in particular? Yeah, you said Spiriva, was it? Yeah, Spiriva and Proes. Yeah, yeah. I think you know that that's that's an area where look, we've had um, quite a lot of success delivering complex and, and MC products, right? And then a number of ones over the last, you know, go back since 2007, um, 2010, where we've had industry first, right? And we've had some industry first in 
respiratory products like, you know, like Wixella, right? Wixella's been a fantastic yeah. product for us. I think it really just comes down to, look, we look at all opportunities, right? We look at all opportunities, and, you know, the respiratory space is a very, I'll say, U.S.-centric space for us right now. Um, one of the things that we didn't get into yet, but we kind of tipped into it when your first question was, like, where's the company going? What are we going to be focused on? What do we announce? And that's where we announced you know, over a longer period of time, I'll say it's not a sole focus, but an increasing focus on three therapeutic areas, uh, GI, um, ophthalmology, and dermatology. And, and part of that was because we believe that you get global economies of scale in some of those TAs that I just mentioned. Respiratory tends to be a more kind of U.S.-centric opportunity um, not to say that, you know, you can't bring respiratory products to other parts of the world. You certainly can. So that's just one where, you know, I, all I could say is that as, you know, we, we model opportunities and we look at things that, you know, we think make sense for us and can deliver the ROI that we want. Um, it was just a matter of it not kind of fitting with um, the investments that we had in R&D and where we kind of want to take the company over the longer period of time. Uh, and I think uh, more more general question on uh, DPIs, and maybe you can assume this is targeted to Vixella, that uh, when you launched a product like a, a DPI product like Vixella, I mean, would, was it very tough for uh, the patient to switch out of their existing uh, branded product, given that you know, uh, you know, it, it's a very uh, you know typical uh, uh, product. So did you face that? And obviously there was tough competition from the innovator as well. So if you could uh, give us some view there, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's twofold in the way you should think about the, the, the dynamic, right? A lot of it is, yes, if you start with the, the branded competitor and the incumbent, right, they have, so anytime you come to market, right, you just say, okay, and I don't know what the pre-launch branded share was, but obviously they are incentivized to hold on to as much volume as they possibly can. Now, what happens is, right, you come in with a, a generic alternative, um, and, you know, all of a sudden you have to have discussions with payers, right? So what happens is it, it's not only does, going back to the mayor example, does the physician and patient get comfortable with the change out, right, to a generic, but then the patient, right, also has to have a um, right of access from a reimbursement perspective in the U.S. So if the branded competitor is offering that patient's health plan a very, I'll say, competitive rebate where they get first preference, then even though the patient and the physician get comfortable with the switch out, if you don't have access in that particular account, then it makes very hard makes it very hard for you um, to get care and to get uptake. And so when you look at like a launch curve or you look at Wixella, you know that Wixella for us and the way we talk about you, you hear Rajiv talk about the complex product life cycle is that it's more of a slower ramp. So it's a little bit slower ramp you know, one to three years in terms of getting to kind of peak share, very different than a commoditized solid dose oral. But then you have, once you get the peak share, you have a nice 
annuity tail in that complex product. And that's where over that one to three years, what you're doing is you're building access account by account, right? Different things where some of these access discussions only happen on a semi-annual basis. So if you launch in, say, October or November, a lot of the access access discussions, excuse me, for um, hypothetically for 2023, will occur, you know, in the spring and the summertime. So you've missed that access window for a period of time. So that's also a piece of it. But I would say, yes, it, it, it tends to be slower on the front end until you build confidence, physician, patient level, and then also you build your, you build your access. But for us, when we look at the value curve of this type of product that will excel, which will deliver great value to Beatrice over a three to five, seven year period, that's a much more, much more value under the curve versus a product like I talked about earlier, like a tech error which is 30 days of really strong sales, and then you get hit by a lot of competitors. It's almost like a, I call it like the isosceles triangle, where it's a fast ramp, and then it's a really fast decline. Yeah. No, no, I think very useful. Uh, also, uh, especially on uh, generic adware or civic seller for you, right? I mean, um, uh, firstly, why did you choose to uh, choose to brand it, right, uh, first? And uh, now that you have, even Teva on the market, and there are, I assume, uh, three, uh, three generics and one authorized player. Has the pricing gone down meaningfully versus uh, what it was when you launched first? Yeah, yeah. And that's, it, it, that's, that's directionally, you're, you're right. It's, you know, new competitors coming in, Teva, uh, Hikma as well, right? These are big competitors, relationships. Um, we, we have seen, um, we have seen kind of price erosion since we kind of launched the product. I mean, is it is it like substantial? And I think it's not. I was very different than a, than a commoditized scenario. I mean, I I would say that it's a fraction. It's a fraction of the price concession that you see on the commoditized side. So there still remains a lot of value for us for the share that we've built. And 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 just maybe uh, uh, an attachment to the previous answer, not this one, the previous answer you gave. Uh, you did mention that how uh, you know Nylon and Vitrus were able to navigate the whole adware uh, sort of reimbursement, right? So, is it specific to the first uh, generic in such a product, or the subsequent generic as well have the have have, have to do the same thing? Yeah, you. It's it's. I'll call it as company by company and product by product. So, for example, whether you are, let me say this. Let's think about it this way. Order entry is really important, and that's why for us, when we look at the ROI modeling on products we want to develop, right, order of entry and first approval holds a lot of value and a lot of potential value capture. And that's because you can go against the brand of product and you can just compete with them. They're incentivized, right? The brand of product in a two-player market is incentivized to keep the price as high as they possibly can, right? And and the rebates, when a competitor, when a first generic comes in, then obviously there's a price concession. When you have two, three other generics come in, when they come in, they have to do their own rebating and their own book building in terms of building access. It's not like they can just piggyback off of the first generics kind of agreements, access, rebates that they're offering. And a lot of times what happens is they go in and they'll negotiate with a CVS 
or a care mark for somebody. And that will force us to have a, a renegotiation, right? Because they want to kind of get yeah. access to the volume we have. Yeah. Got it. So you're saying that every company would subsequently launch, even after a first journey, has to put in a lot of hard work in, in such complex products, generally, right? That's what you're trying to say, right? That's, 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 okay. that's the, there's a lot of commercial work. Uh, Perfect. Perfect. And sorry, I, I did ask you, why did you brand uh, uh, generic underwear? It was a substitutable product, right? So why did you choose to make it Mixilla? Yeah, I think when you look at all of our um, all our complex products, right, and and, and a novel and NCE products, um, we, we've come up with our own brands and versions. And I think part of it is, too, because um, there are differences, right? Um, not that they're clini- clinically meaningful. There are differences um, be- between the products. So I think it's more of a, a regulatory and a filing requirement than necessarily a, a preference. Yeah, got it. Okay. Now, maybe moving on to U.S. injectables, I think that's one very interesting area, and I can see a lot of products in your pipeline as well. Um, so, I mean, are you, again, I think like the like like the oral, um, you know, like the oral oral solid side, right? I think uh, you know, obviously, oral solids do see a very. I mean, they are very very competitive, and the injectable space has been less competitive, or let's say, less price erosion prone. I think it may be competitive, but less price erosion prone, right? I mean, are you seeing now this space also getting sort of more competitive, and is price erosion touching new highs? And this is something that we've been hearing for a few players. Yeah, I think I think it's really product by product. Well, this is a space where um, when you uh, and you know there's a as you probably have seen it, maybe this is what you're referring to, um, right? The focus for us, we we have a, a real strong internal capability and success in complex injectables. You'll get the analytical chemistry we have in house, device design, the manufacturing, the sterile fill finish. Right, and um, you know, across nanomedicines, depot injection, complex APIs, right? And there's right, generic Paxil, Mectosa, Megatrimza, there's a bunch of things. Um, we continue to see this be a really attractive market. And, you know, I think there's there's a complex curve there in terms of the products. I think a little bit maybe more of the commoditized side of injectables. Things that are right don't necessarily require all those kind of capabilities and experiences that we have. We tend to see this be more competitive. Um, as you said, we've got a really broad pipeline here um, that we're developing um, across multiple therapeutic areas. So I would say for us, this is going to be a core piece of what we continue to invest in. We think there's, you know, there is opportunity for us to to have success with these types of products. So, uh, how large is this portfolio in the U.S.? I mean, just at a very, you know, broad yeah. I don't think we've, we've said um, how big the injectables business is, um, but obviously we're going after some, some big products. Um, you know, when you look at, let's just say, Vega Trinza, right, coming up, that's a Palaparadone three-month. Um, yeah. That's in development, submitted in the U.S. in development in Europe. You look at um, um, there's a bunch of others in in oncology and in CNS and anesthesia. Um, 
you know, injectifer, venifer, and hematology. So these are big, pretty big markets. So they have the opportunity to be meaningful competitors. And what I'll say is going forward, and this is a piece of the pipeline, you know, we talk a lot about new product revenue from the pipeline of being about $600 million per year. You know, there's a handful of injectables that will be significant contributors to that $600 million, you know, on a go-forward basis. And this is certainly going to be a core, core area for us. And, uh, you know, I think one of the most important products uh, has been Copexon for you, right? I mean, I mean, is Copexon the same or there's more pressure on pricing by the innovator? I mean, as I think they continue to lose share that we can see, but, I mean, is there more... Uh, you know, pressure for you guys and uh, are sales sort of flattening or declining? I mean, as we as we speak. Yeah, I would say sales are, are pretty pretty stable there. Um, you know, that Compaxone as a molecule continues to have a place in the MS market, right? And has a you know a long-standing kind of history, right? Um, in in MS, um, I would say that you know our focus, I would say that product's more in the, the tail point of its life cycle. Um, what, we're, one of the, what we're excited about is the potential for um, a once-monthly product, which we have in development right now, um, which we think potentially could launch in the 20, late 24-25 timeframe. So, you know, that's that's a market when you look at kind of how much volume is on the branded Compaxone, how much is going to generics. The opportunity to come out with a once-monthly could be really interesting. So that's uh, that's one to keep an eye out on. Yeah, so I think maybe most likely or uh, once monthly would replace your most of your Copexon generic sales. Is that a fair assumption over a longer term? I, I think that would be the that would be the business plan. That and capture you know not just the generic market that we have now, but more of the market that we probably don't as well. I think that would be the, the opportunity for us. Sure. Uh, so moving on to another very very interesting product, I think uh, a lot of interest um, is uh, on Revlimid, right? I think uh, I can see your slides and it says you have a second half of 2022 launch, right? I mean, um, you know, any 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 sense that you are giving in terms of um, you know when you are launching this product? Is it like do you call it the second wave, third wave, or I mean, how how do you uh, sort of uh, uh, you know speak about that and? Um, any sense also on, in terms of what what one one should see in terms of pricing? It's a very low volume product. It seems that there are a lot of competitors coming in later as well. So what what, what are you going to see in terms of pricing as well? If you could well, comment this, on that. Yeah, this is this is you said Revlimid. Revlimid, yes. Revlimid. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. Okay. <clears throat> Just to make sure I had it. So that product, we that product this year. It's already launched in in Europe, right? Is doing a, it's a very good product for us. On the generic side, that's contributing to, you know, Europe is a, a growth segment for us, you know, in the U.S., which I think where your question is targeted. Um, we have, you know, an agreement in place that allows us to launch um, it this year. It's in Q3. Um, you know, the, the terms of that agreement are confidential, but that, I'll just say, it's on a volume-limited basis, similar to, to Teva, right? Teva, and I don't I'm not going to comment whether the volume is the same or not, but so we'll launch in, in Q3 this year. I think what you've seen um, in the market and based on what you can see externally in data from, from Teva is that the pricing um, 
for that product, uh, given the way the agreements are structured, looks pretty favorable, and I'll say different than what you see generally with a, a kind of a small molecule type generic launch. Um, so, yeah, that'll be a you know a, a good launch for us. But again, it's it's it's, it's volume limited, um, and will be so for a period of time. Yeah. And and uh, any sense of the pricing that you have? I mean, current pricing and what do you expect in terms of at launch pricing? Any any sense you have of that? Yeah, I I, I want to be able to comment right now just because we we haven't launched it. So until there's sure. some public data out there, then we could. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, sure. That's uh, sure. And I I think you did mention that you know uh, uh, pricing looks favorable from what they were saying. Um, very likely to be favorable even going forward. But, I mean, if I look at as an outsider, right, that this is a, you know, there are 10-plus players who have already settled and maybe more will settle. Um, are, why, why should it not see very high erosion like uh, 90% or even even more than 50%? Why would somebody not uh, think of this in that way? Well, you know, I think this because if you take the example, go back to the Texadera example, where you had uh, right, Biogen's branded product, you had us for a period of 30 days, and then you had a flood of generic competitors all going after a kind of share, right? And so the, the differentiator between that market and Revelmid, the way that this has been structured is, um, there is volume limited opportunity for generic players. So, it's not like 100% of the market is available where you can go to any account and say, I want to compete for this business. Let's have a discussion on rebates and concessions. So between now and 2026, there's volume structured into this market. I think that is the differentiator in terms of what will probably change the pricing analog that you tend to see once generics kind of enter the market. And then after 26, it's, it's, it's open market. So I think that it'll be an interesting thing to see how it plays out. I'm not saying that in my comments here that pricing will stay the same over that period between now and 26, but I think it just is a different analog given, given the way the agreements are structured. Sure. Um, guys, anybody has a question in the, in the audience, you can, you feel, please feel free to raise your hands. Or I have more questions I can keep continuing to ask. Yeah. Um, so, Dinesh, yeah, please go ahead. You can unmute yourself. Yeah, thanks, Anshul. Thanks, uh, William, for your time. Uh, I wanted to ask you on the uh, the Africa tender business that I think uh, Mylan is is a reasonable part of, you know, uh, is a, is a large market share might not be a large percentage of your business and I understand that it's quite competitive and given that you talked about being into more differentiated products, so why is it that, uh, you know, as a company you still continue to be in that tender anti, uh, you know, AIDS, ARV business? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question and again, it's, I would say at a high level, it really is, you know, we think about things globally but also we have to think about the in segment market, in segment opportunities and the dynamics. You're right, in emerging markets and in Africa, we've had a long-standing um, commitment and I'll say access initiative at Milan and now it's continuing to be a to supply high quality, affordable 
um, antiretroviral medicines right to that market. And you know we, we will continue to do that because from a from a it's one of the principles in our in our ESG framework is is to do that. And so as we've seen looked at that market and what you see this year acutely is you know um, there are it's competitive but there's also newer regimens and and different I'll say I'll say products that are available to patients and so. Um, we continue to see that business being attractive given the volumes um, for our for our emerging markets business. That business is under pressure this year. We do see it stepping down. We talked a lot about that in our in our guidance and our quarterly results around the ARV step down. We see it kind of plateauing at the end of this year um, and getting to more of a, a stable kind of state. So again, it, it's just a matter of for us the portfolio and emerging markets is going to look different than the portfolio in Europe and the portfolio in the U.S. Um, and it really is dependent upon kind of what the the opportunities are and what the market needs are in, in each particular segment. I think that's more of the rationale of, of how we look at it. Okay. And uh, coming back to Biocon Biologics, we will have like a low teens percentage stake. And uh, over time, I'm, I mean, I have not gone through the detail working of Biocon Biologics, but it may be that they might need more equity. So, would you be putting in more equity to maintain your stake, or would you be selling your equity over a period of time and getting out of Biocon Biologics? Yeah, yeah. So that that transaction, um, you know, we just got CCI clearance. Uh, I think we had one more to go in RBI. We expect to close this year, second half. Um, but I think both. Parties are incentivized to, to get to close as soon as we possibly can. Um, you know, when you look at the, the equity stake, right, that equity stake is a reflection of components of the consideration from Biocon to us. Right? We get, this year we'll get $2 billion of cash from Biocon. There's some deferred payments related to ILEA and some other things, and then there's the equity stake. Um, there's no necessary lockup on that equity. I don't think we would be looking to contribute more equity into Biocon. I mean, that's at least not kind of how we're thinking about it. Um, you know, the, the equity stake, we're most incentivized to, to maximize this new structure, right, and the success of that business. Um, so I would say that, you know, we're probably looking at it more from, a, you know, what can we do to best position that business over the next few years, and then how do we think about monetizing that stake after the IPO? I think that's kind of you know, right now, how we're thinking about it. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Uh, Nikhil Ram, Reshma Kamal, anybody? Anshuman, anybody? Or I'll ask a couple of maybe last questions. Yeah. Uh, in terms of China as an opportunity, right? I mean, is it is it... Uh, uh, is it becoming far more competitive? We hear a lot of the Indian players also trying to enter the space. I mean, firstly, how, how difficult is it to make a mark in that country, one? And secondly, uh, do you think that um, as an opportunity versus like three years back, it's, it's becoming more and more competitive? Yeah. I think it's definitely you got two things going on in, in, in China, right, um, on, on the backdrop of some macro things. That, which I'll get to. I think you've got certainly, you know, 
increased competition, right? That's, that's for sure. In China, our business is solely, um, centered on the legacy Upjohn brands, right? We don't have a generics business in China, nor will we in the future, just given the level of competitiveness. That's a decision the company's made not to bring generics to China. The legacy brands that we have, what we've seen is you've got a lot of brand equity that still remains on in China. Um, and, you know, what we've had to kind of navigate is, yeah, there's competitive dynamics, but more so healthcare reform and um, healthcare policy like volume-based procurement, universal reimbursement pricing. BBPs had a significant impact on our portfolio. Um, I would say we're mostly through it. Over 90% of the portfolio is through it at this point. And because of BBP and the focus on increasing utilization away from brands to generic alternatives, we've had to, I'll say, redesign our, I'll say, commercial strategy and in terms of where our focus is. And that's where the company's made investments and, and a focus on the, I'll say, not just the hospital, public side, but the private institution and retail side. So a lot of our business now is, is moving away from public hospital volume to private retail self-pay, where patients pay out of pocket for a Lipitor, for a Viagra, for a Lyrica, because of the perceived brand quality. As we go forward, you know, we see that business I'll say stable. I think this year we expect China to be 1% to 2% down on an operational basis. We see that business, you know, fairly stable. And then there's, there will be a point where our focus will be to maximize the life cycle of those upjohn brands. But then really there's an effort to bring in a lot of complex products. I think we've got two dozen or so complex products we're looking to file and potentially get on the market over the next two to three years in China. So, that would be the area where we can then capitalize on our digital capabilities, our retail kind of strategy, and bringing things like one of the products that we can potentially bring that could be really interesting is a simple core to China. So I would say that's more of how we see, you know, the, the dynamics right now and, and where that business is. Sure. Uh, Ram, you, you want to ask a question? Ram, please unmute yourself. Yeah. yeah. Hi, just a question, you know, on the point which you made that the generic pricing in Europe has been pretty stable versus U.S., which has seen this deflation. Anything which is underlying different in these two geographies, I mean, which is driving this sort of pricing behavior? Yeah, I think the, the, the big difference is that I'll, it's, I'll call it single source versus fragmentation. And what I mean by that is in the U.S., you have um, – a little bit more of a fragmented market where you have, you know, a few kind of big, um, you've got PBMs, you've got kind of pharmacies, you've got kind of different reimbursement landscape. In, in Europe, for the most part, you have single source reimbursement. And I think that's where, um, you tend to see you don't have this, this payer PBM rebating game in Europe like you do the U.S. And I think that's, Given that dynamic is what we tend to see probably a little bit different on the pricing. Um, and I also think you don't necessarily you have competition in Europe. I don't think you have necessarily the level of competition and the level of rebating and concessions that are given 
to kind of get volume, right? And a lot of times you'll have competition that gives volume away at low margin or negative volume, negative margin in the U.S. to kind of get business. In Europe, it tends to be a little bit more stable. You don't have this cycle of, of pricing resets like you're, you're seeing in the U.S. I don't know if I'm in the biosimilars business, right? I mean, I would love to hear your thoughts on how you see the market evolving in terms of a need to have a portfolio approach, especially for U.S. I mean, in your mind, do on a longer-term basis, is that a necessity, or would you, you know, would somebody be able to succeed in that marketplace with one or two products? Yeah, I would say that, um, well, there's going to be opportunities, um, for multiple competitors given the size of the market with different types of offerings. I think the true winners, um, when we look at that market formation going forward for some of the bigger products, you know, will really be centered on, like I talked about, not only vertical integration, but end-to-end capabilities. So if you are a, you know, a typical, say it's a branded company in the U.S., maybe like an Amgen, where you have the ability to bring biosimilars to market, you have the ability to um, provide end-to-end services, both from a medical and Salesforce perspective, right? That can that can sell into those biosimilars. You have you know existing access and you know uh, PBM kind of hub capabilities in your model. That's going to be really important. So for somebody that brings a one or you know, one or two products in a niche type of setting, I think, yeah, I think there's going to be opportunities. It's going to be a big market. Um, but, you know, I, I I think if you were a niche player that was going into a market against a player that's got an established portfolio of biosimilars, um, you know, I think that is, uh, you know, certainly is going to kind of be the, the line between the winners and the losers. Not saying you can't be a winner in that smaller market. I just think that those opportunities will be much smaller going forward. Thanks. Thanks, Sure. I think I think it's time already. We have crossed time limit. So, you know, thanks, William, and thanks everybody for participating today. It was a very uh, useful call. Um, uh, thanks, thanks, William. Thank you. No, thank you so much. Really nice uh, talking to all of you and. Um, you have my contact information. Anybody wants to reach out or ask questions, feel free to send me an email at any time or happy to get on a call. But uh, sure. thank you again for your time. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Willie. Bye. Bye-bye.